Hello, Cases and Controversies listeners. This is producer David Schultz. Why are you hearing the sound of my voice right now? Uh, It's summer. We are a Supreme Court podcast. Shouldn't we be on hiatus? Well, no, because the Supreme Court just issued an opinion that may or may not have totally overturned Roe v. Wade, or at least in Texas. To explain what all this means to both you and to myself, I dragged Kimberly and Jordan out of their summer vacation and onto the podcast. Here's Kimberly. The Texas law is one of many, many laws across the nation in these GOP states that are really seeking to challenge uh, Roe versus Wade and the court's other abortion jurisprudence. Um, And so this one is actually the strictest abortion restrictions in the country. It bans, effectively bans abortions after six weeks or whenever a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Now, the abortion providers in this case point out that that's before many people know that they're even pregnant. And they guess that anywhere um, as many as 85% of abortions in Texas could now be banned. It's not a typical like criminal ban on getting abortion or performing an abortion um, that you think would normally be uh, enforced by government officials. Instead, what Texas did, and probably in an effort to evade judicial review as they were able to do here, um, was they empower private citizens uh, to bring cases against people who they say are aiding and abetting abortions. And so, you know, this includes not just doctors who perform form abortions, but anybody who gives someone a ride to an abortion clinic, somebody who pays uh, for an abortion, and even somebody who intends to help out a woman um, get an abortion, but then actually doesn't end up carrying it out. That doesn't matter under this law. And so, you know, we saw Justice Sotomayor say that this was a bounty hunter scheme. Um, and that's something that Texas has put in place to really muddy the waters. And as we saw um, with the Supreme Court action, that's exactly what happened. So so let's get into what I think a lot of people are talking about, which is uh, why we're here at all. It's summer. What are we doing having a cases podcast? Why did the Supreme Court have to act now instead of waiting for, you know, arguments and briefs and all that jazz? Well, you know, we've been hearing a lot about this, you know, so-called shadow docket. Um, Really what it is is, you know, that the Supreme Court has orders that it issues really all the time, not just when it's in session from October to June. Um, And that's really just because, you know, as every appellate court has, there has to be some mechanism for the justices to act on emergency requests. And so interestingly, um, you know, the abortion providers here were the ones who brought this request up to the Supreme Court and asked them to intervene after the Fifth Circuit had kind of put the brakes on all the lower court ruling. Um, and, but one of the criticisms have been that not just in this case, but in many very consequential cases, we've been seeing things happen on this shadow docket, which involves you know no oral argument, really expedited briefing, things that happen over days rather than months. Um, and oftentimes we don't get a really considered opinion that lays out all the points and counterpoints for why the justices made their decisions. You know, we've talked about it on this podcast a lot that sometimes we don't even know how the justices voted um, in these cases. Um, Speaking of that, you know, I think we know how all the justices voted here, but only because there were four dissenters. Jordan, can you talk a little bit about how that works that Sometimes, you know, a justice may not join the majority, but may not dissent. Right. Well, it's as you say, 
a lot of this stems from just the court kind of making up its own rules of what it wants to tell us about what it's doing. And especially now, given that we have this 6-3 split between the Republican and Democratic appointees, for example, a lot of the time we'll only have the three Democratic appointees dissenting. And that technically will, in some cases, like in death penalty cases, leave open the question of, oh, did one of the Republican appointees secretly want to join them? And honestly, I mean, Kimberly and I, we talk about this a lot, and I think we both agree that it's close to a waste of time playing that game because they probably don't really secret agree. And at least from my view, if if they really think that it's important to dissent, which is the whole point of why people are dissenting, because they think it's important, then they can let us know that. So it's a bit of a parlor game, really, that is something that Supreme Court nerds like us can talk about. But I think the reality is if you're publishing an opinion and you want to dissent from it and you want to let us know that you disagree, you can just do that. So before we get into uh, the individual justices, uh, I wanted to talk more about sort of what this ruling did and what it didn't do. I mean, there's the discussion on social media is voluminous here, and people are saying that this ruling effectively overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, You know, A, do you think that's the case? And also, what does this mean for another landmark Supreme Court ruling, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which it seems like this gets at even more directly? Right. Well, I mean, you know, I I think there are kind of two ways to look at this case, Um, kind of the procedural way and then kind of substantively what's happening on the ground. I mean, of course, procedural rulings, uh, we tend to shrug off as just like technical decisions, but they do have, you know, substantial consequences on the ground. Here, um, you know, the procedural ruling was just that the Supreme Court said that you know, the question of who these abortion providers can sue is not a clear one and that it wasn't enough uh, for the Supreme Court um, to step in, given the uncertainty as to that question. Um, And that certainly is a procedural ruling. But on the ground in Texas, what that has meant is that abortion providers have started turning away um, people who are more than six weeks along in their pregnancy. So effectively, they have overturned Roe versus Wade, at least in Texas. And uh, we see other states indicating that they want to go ahead and copy uh, this model law that Texas has um, so far successfully put into place. Um, You know, you mentioned Planned Parenthood versus Casey. I think we all point to Roe as kind of like the abortion ruling. Of course, you know, abortion jurisprudence is governed by uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which kind of put into place this line about when states can uh, start to restrict abortion. And it created this kind of viability line that says, look, before a, a fetus can live outside of a womb, then the state really has no interest in uh, banning or restricting abortions. It can't it can't place an undue burden on a woman's right to an abortion. But once that line is crossed, then the state's interest becomes um, greater and there are more restrictions uh, that can be put in place. Now, there's some wiggle room as to where that viability line is. There's no wiggle room that it is not at six weeks. Um, so this unquestionably goes against Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, and, you know, for all intents and purposes in Texas, Casey is no longer good law, at least for now. Mm, wow. Um, we don't have time to go through what this means for all nine justices. Um, so I wanted to single out, uh, two of them. First, let's talk about the chief justice. Uh, Jordan, 
I have to imagine that this is not a outcome that he would have wanted, uh, you know, based on everything that uh, we've talked about. He's someone who really guards the kind of um, procedures of the court. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that this is something that the chief justice didn't want to see happen and is uh, is a disappointment for him? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think for him and maybe for the conservative legal movement generally, this case might wind up having some level of buyer's remorse, uh, at least in terms of the way that they achieved the victory here. Um, you know, as far as Roberts and the whole institutional thing, you know, I don't know. I think that's somewhat of a of a made-up thing because what you think is institutional will depend on what you want to see happen in a given case. And so not just in this area, but in other shadow docket rulings, for example, with the death penalty, which I've been thinking a lot about in the context of this case, he was with the rest of the majority and letting those cases go forward. And maybe to some people, those aren't as big as this abortion decision. But anyway, is he happy with how it turned out and the resultant press from it? Probably not. But I mean, like a bunch of the other Republican appointees, he's a movement conservative lawyer. And this is the galvanizing issue that turned the court into the 6-3 court that it is now. So maybe he would have preferred to wait until June to formally overrule Roe or to have his colleagues formally overrule Roe while he maybe takes a narrower position for whatever reason he might want to. But, you know, maybe he's happy and sad about it at the same time. Uh, Kimberly, what do you think? Is the whole Roberts the Institutionalist sort of a, a, you know, overblown meme? Well, that's certainly not, um, you know, what he wrote. You know, the focus of his dissent in this case was that, you know, procedurally, the justices should have put this case on hold. And, you know, it, it does require getting into a, the weeds a little bit as to what happened in the case below. Um, but basically, the district court was was primed and ready. There was briefing ready for um, it to decide on this question that is really fuzzy. And the Fifth Circuit put a halt to it. And, you know, some of the justices thought, well, we'll let the Fifth Circuit kind of do its work. Um, and Chief Justice Roberts thought it was best to kind of move the decision along. So, you know, whether or not we want to take him in his word, it was really one of a procedural institutional kind of concern for for Chief Justice Roberts. I think it's really notable um, that he was joined by Justices Breyer and Kagan in his dissent, but not by Justice Sotomayor. It doesn't seem like she has a procedural quip with this case, really, but uh, more of a substantive one. So I was only going to ask about the Chief Justice and, and Justice Kagan, but I get the sense um, that Justice Sotomayor's uh, dissent was had some interesting stuff in it. Let's talk about that. What um, was she getting at and why did she have a separate dissent? Well, I think one of the lines from it was that the state's gambit worked. I think that maybe is one way to sum up her dissent or at least part of it. I think she more so than the Roberts dissent. And the, I, I will say, though, that Roberts, I think, essentially said that it was a gambit, too, without using the gambit terminology. So they're not maybe as far apart as far as the bottom line here than it might seem. But, you know, I think basically she didn't join his because it was kind of soft in a way, and she just didn't want any part of it from her view, you know, soft in her view, I would think. This is a role that we've really seen her play a lot, um, really often um, 
you know, even when Justice Ginsburg um, was still on the court, uh, we saw Justice Ginsburg really assigning some dissents in really important cases to her so that she could write, um, you know, these harder kind of going right straight to the substantive problem and not kind of dilly dallying on the procedural stuff as much. And I think it's a role we'll continue to see um, as long as these are the three liberals on the court. Uh, and then I also wanted to talk about Justice Kagan. Um, we've talked about in the past how she's seems like she's sort of playing the long game and made a lot of compromises on other cases as a way to sort of stake her claim as to you know stare decisis and precedent. Um, how's that working out for her now? Well, David, you're hitting on all of my like Supreme Court uh, meme pet peeves here in this discussion because I've never really understood the Kagan playing the long game idea because I don't know what she's gotten out of it or expects to. Uh, you know, she has at least written more strongly about stare decisis in some cases. There was at least one instance that I can think of in a case about unanimous jury verdicts where she joined some of the Republican appointees for stare decisis purposes. But, you know, in terms of how it's working out for her, if her goal was to try and win on the substance of issues, it's not working out well at all. If it's to maintain a consistent position, I guess that's working out well for whatever that's worth to her. I, I can speak to that exactly. So it really depends on what exactly she's trying to accomplish. Well, I think, you know, Justice Kagan's dissent is quite different from Justice Sotomayor's, and she really is, um, you know, not going after, in this case, really the precedent as much as Justice Sotomayor is going into. Instead, hers was one about, uh, you know, the shadow docket and all the problems with the shadow docket and increasing concerns. Um, and, and although it might not be in her line of, you know, we need to respect precedent, um, game plan. It is one in where she's trying to take a, a long-term um, view that, you know, we the court shouldn't be doing these things on the shadow docket. So, um, you know, I, I do agree with Jordan that it, it doesn't really seem like she's getting a lot um, with her, you know, play the long game on precedent. But this didn't really seem to be one of those cases where uh, that mattered all that much. Let's talk about what this means for the uh, the term that starts in October. Uh, the actual term. Um, there is an abortion case that uh, is on the docket. Uh, it is uh, Dobbs. Uh, what does that mean? What does this mean for Dobbs? I mean, are it, does that case now completely different? Like, what's going on? It's not completely different. It's the same case it was where people were still trying to get Roe overturned. I mean, I think, let's say that this recent Texas decision never happened, and you were to ask us what's going to happen in this Mississippi case, we would say that they're going to effectively overturn Roe and Casey in some form of another. That's still true now. It just kind of has this added dimension to it now because of this Texas. It, it, they've essentially gotten a head start on their ruling in overruling Roe and Casey by way of this Texas case. But as for what it means for the substance, I think the outcome is going to be the same as it was before this. I do think it's really interesting to note that, you know, in this upcoming term, if we contrast it with last term, I think, you know, I wrote a story about how there had been all these odd alliances and cases didn't always come down the way that we thought they were going to, you know, cases that we thought were going to be really bad for progressives ended up being not as bad or cases where we thought the conservatives were going to go really, really far. They kind of 
held back a little bit. Um, but we noted at that time that, you know, the rubber was really going to meet the road in this next term. And that's because you know, it's not just abortion on the list, but there are guns, possibly affirmative action. And there's all kinds of smaller issues um, that are going to be flying under the radar when we have these big hot button issues on the term that are going to be really consequential too. And I think this case just shows how hard it is for the liberal bloc to notch any wins in this area. You know, they were able to convince Chief Justice Roberts, but nobody else. And so they lost. Um, And they're going to have to do that in every single case um, where, you know, there are issues that are important to progressives. That makes sense. Um, and Jordan, it sounded like what you were saying is that, you know, this doesn't make Dobbs moot, uh, not by any stretch, but it does kind of make Dobbs more of a foregone conclusion, or maybe just as much of a foregone conclusion as it was before this. That's right. But but in your question, though, I think you're raising something important because you mentioned before this sort of uh, semantic, but very important semantic debate that we're seeing about whether the court has officially overruled Roe. And at least from my view, the people I'm seeing insisting that it has are the people who most are going to not want that to be true when the court actually decides the issue. So on some level, the semantic debate doesn't matter if you're in Texas right now and trying to get an abortion. You can't. They don't care what the words say on the page. But I think even in this very case, as it continues to be litigated, the challengers are going to maintain that Roe and Casey are still good law for now. And that's going to be true in the Mississippi case, too. So in one sense, it's a you know formal, informal distinction. We can say that the court informally overruled it as to Texas for the time being effectively. But at the same time, people who still want to maintain abortion rights are going to point to the fact that it's still on the books. You know, yes, this case doesn't formally overrule Roe versus Wade. But I think if you kind of look at the underlying issue is, of course, one of abortion rights. And you can see how um, earnestly the justices each feel about protecting that right. So you can replace almost anything with abortion and think maybe how the Supreme Court might have reacted to that. Um, Throw in gun rights, um, which a lot of the justices on the court have been complaining is a second class right. If the same rule just had guns instead of abortion, I don't think that this comes out the same way. And um, and possibly even it comes out 9-0 the other way. Um, and so I think that even though Roe versus Wade formally stays on the books, I think it does show some kind of um, mistrust in the right to an abortion. That was Kimberly Robinson and Jordan Rubin, the hosts of this very podcast, talking about the Supreme Court decision on abortion. Check back in later this month. We'll have more on this issue and on the upcoming Supreme Court term. Until then, thank you so much for listening. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.